This morning, we're going to kick off a three-part teaching series we've called Dismantling the Patriarchy. And uh, we hope that it will be uplifting and empowering in the end. But to get there, we have to face some hard truths. Uh, Our happy task today in part one is to examine patriarchy in Bible interpretation, specifically in the interpretive tradition surrounding Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And then we'll talk about what is our responsibility with that interpretive tradition today. Uh, Let me offer a definition of patriarchy. It is a system in which men hold power and maintain a higher status to the detriment and harm of women. Now, this assumes that gender and sex are binaries, which they are not, so it's a little oversimplified, admittedly, but let's just you know, work with the simplified version of this uh, for our purposes. Uh, patriarchy is everywhere. It is in everything. So if we use this definition, it is literally the way of things in pretty much every culture and context. Uh, There are countless studies and data that that demonstrate men's societal advantages at work in virtually every aspect of our lives. Income, education, cosmetics, healthcare, politics, sports, and of course, faith and church. Let me give one practical example, not church-related, but just to show the bias generally out there, which is something close to my heart, sports, and specifically soccer or football, as it's called in the rest of the world. When sports media or journalism talks about soccer, they are always referring to the men's game. Okay, So they'll just talk about soccer, some soccer event, soccer stadium. It's always about the men and the men's sport. If they want to refer to women's soccer, then they have to use that word, women, women's soccer, right? That has to precede the word soccer to make it clear. So men's soccer, soccer is the default for the men's game. And it's not just a matter of words, because that default in our language obscures the larger default of all the resources that go into the men's game and not the women's game. Recently, there was a huge push in the United States for equal pay for the women of uh, the women's national team in the United States to be paid equally with the men, and which was just awarded. It's the first nation to do so. Um, And the push for this uh, took a long time even though the men were paid like 10 times more per event or per game, and millions of dollars are at play here. And even though the women's team have won four World Cups, that's the World Cup is the biggest sports event, period, in the world. The women have won four. No other countries come close. And and so the U.S. women are fantastic. And the men are not so fantastic. Um, And so, but the men were paid more consistently over time, and so there's this huge push. Uh, and uh, which was, it was great to see that awarded after a long, hard fight. I'm embarrassed to tell you that even though I'm a big fan of the game and followed this, my first response was unease or even skepticism about this equal pay thing, and I had all kinds of reasons and rationales. And over time, though, I realized it was just patriarchy. 
Like the reason that I was a little resistant to the idea of equal pay is because I was biased. I'm caught in the net of patriarchy. And it took me a while to admit that and come to see that this is actually a really, really good, just, equitable thing happening. Okay, so that's just one example, you know, and as any parents out there who have young children in sports, like we see this, we see this, it's getting a little better equity in sports, in the sports world, but there are still inequities present. Now, when it comes to faith and the Bible specifically, it's very easy to point out the patriarchal elements. In fact, a lot of Bible scholars won't even use the word patriarchy. They think it's unhelpful because it's all pervasive. It's a little bit like pointing out that the Bible consists of words. Like, well spotted, you know? Um, and so, so what happens is we're using that word um, as a way to give us access. And we can take time to get specific about what and how patriarchal elements are at work in the Bible. So that's where it can be helpful. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to jump into the Bible story from Genesis chapter 3. We're going to pick up the story. God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in a garden, lots of fruit trees. There's, and then there's two important trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they are not supposed to eat. Here we go. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? (laughs) God's questions in the Bible. We could do a whole sermon series on God's questions to people in the Bible. Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. The Lord God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? 
the woman said, the serpent tricked me and I ate. Now, the story goes on from there with God announcing some consequences for uh, this act, which I'll, we'll come back to in a little bit. I want to offer some commentary from other Christian leaders and theologians in church history. So these are all quotes that we have from texts that they wrote or spoke, but we have the text written. And they're all commenting on this story in Genesis or a story in Scripture that is based on this Genesis account, okay? Um, This is going to be unpleasant. Content warning. Okay, here we go. We'll start with St. Augustine from around the year 400. What is the difference whether it is in a wife or a mother? It is still Eve the temptress that we must be aware of in any woman. I fail to see what use woman can be to man if one excludes the function of bearing children. Here's Tertullian from the year 200 in a sermon. Women, you are the devil's gateway. You are the unsealer of that forbidden tree. You are the first deserter of the divine law. You are she who persuaded him whom the devil was not valiant enough to attack. You destroyed so easily God's image, man. On account of your desert that is death, even the Son of God had to die. Thomas Aquinas, as regards the individual nature, woman is defective and misbegotten. For the active force in the male seed tends to the production of a perfect likeness in the masculine sex while the production of woman comes from a defect. Notice the scientific-sounding language. I mean, he he was the scientist of the church. Martin Luther, God himself was so ordained that man, has so ordained that man be created first, first in time, first in authority. His first place is preserved in the law. And finally, Jean Calvin, John Calvin as we know him. Women by nature, he spoke French. Uh, Women by nature is formed to obey. Now it is certain that women were never appointed to any public office. It is an unseemly thing to have women govern men. These are all unpleasant to read, but these quotes are representative of the patriarchal interpretive tradition that was by far the standard, the basis And in that view, we basically have three things. Number one, men are first. They are first in creation, first in status and authority. Number two, women and men both bear the divine image, but men are specialer. (laughs) Okay? Men somehow do it better. You know, they're the true image, and women sort of get there, right? Okay, and then finally, number three, men and women have different and fixed roles. Men lead, women obey. This is true in the household. It's true in the church. And many assume it should be true in all of society. This whole scheme can be summarized in the popular and horrible phrase, women are second in creation, first in sin, which some of us heard growing up in our churches, and that was what was preached. 
Now, to drive home this point even further, which I'm sorry to do, the history of this interpretation is based not just on Genesis, but on several passages from our New Testament, which riff off of the Genesis account. And I want to give those examples. We're going to hear three of them. This one is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. You hear the hierarchy. Indeed, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was the man created for the sake of the woman, but woman for the sake of the man. Ephesians 5, wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. And finally, from 1 Timothy chapter 2, let a woman learn in silence with full submission I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So this is our New Testament. This is the scriptures, our Bible. And there's really no way around it. You know, the, the, the fundamental assumptions, the lens here, is one of male hierarchy, male authority, and female submission. There are often attempts of progressive people to massage these texts and make them sound a little more palatable for our modern context. And I am sympathetic with the goals of those readings. But they miss just acknowledging the true intent of these verses, which is to reinforce the patriarchal structure. Men are first. Men have the authority. Women are second. Women must submit and obey. That's the assumption of all the people of our Bible tradition. Big breath. Okay, so here's the good news. We don't have to do this. <laughs> yeah, we, we, literally, we don't have to submit to this patriarchal norm and the patriarchal values that have been handed to us. It is a choice of how we interpret the Bible. And it is a choice of what we do with the traditions that have handed, been handed to us. Who gave us that choice? God did. God hands every single one of us the responsibility for our choices today. And we can choose what we do today and how will we enact a faith and enact a church structure so we can do so in ways that bring liberty and healing 
to everyone, regardless of gender and sex. Or we can reinforce patriarchal norms in ways that harm a lot of people. The choice is ours. So let's practice. I want to practice with Genesis 3, and I want to offer just three re-readings of how we can do this, how we're free to interpret the Bible in ways that are fruitful, that bring equality and liberation and healing. Uh, okay, so example number one, rereading. In the traditional reading of Genesis chapters two and three, men are, or man is created first, the woman is created second. And this sets up a hierarchical value system of men over women. But the text does not actually say that, ever. Technically speaking, male and female are created at the same time. And here's why this works. And I've talked about, I talked about this before a few weeks ago when I talked about Genesis chapter 2. In the Hebrew language, there are different words for human being and man and woman, just like we have. And so if I say there's a human being outside, it's gender neutral. There's, there's no, you know, we don't know. It's a human being. In the Hebrew, when God creates the first being, that's the word that is used. God creates a human being in the Garden of Eden. And then that human being goes to sleep, and God pulls out, not a rib, rib's a bad translation, pulls out a side of that first person and separates them into a man and a woman. So they are created at the exact same time. There is no first sex. And actually, scientific evolution, I was looking up this up, um, it's actually, the scientific evidence is split on whether men came first, me, me, male humans or female humans. Anyway, it's fascinating. Um, we'll have to have like a small group about that. Anyway, um, but that, so the point is men weren't created first, even according to the Genesis text itself. And on top of that, if you read Genesis chapter 1, which is a slightly different version, men and women are created at the exact same time. And there, they represent a spectrum of gender which again I alluded to several weeks ago in a Genesis 1 sermon, so we'll leave that for another time as well. Example number two. The serpent speaks to the woman, not the man. So the traditional view, patriarchal view, the interpreters think that there's something fundamentally flawed in the woman that allows her to be deceived. And in this reading, the rationale is, well, if the serpent had just come to the man, the fall would have been prevented. <laughs> the fall. Um, which, anyway, that's another thing. We'll leave that aside for now. Um, and so the serpent shows her because she's more gullible, easily deceived, whatever. But there is nothing, literally nothing in the text that says that. And so what interpreters are doing, are they are simply reading into the story their own preconceived views of men and women. They see the woman as easily deceived because that's how they see women. It reflects the values that they already possess. Men interpreting these verses love seeing themselves in the best possible light. And they want to find a woman to blame, and they do. 
I think that's a famous phrase, right? Behind every man's failure is a woman he tries to blame. You know? I mean, this is classic projection because the text is silent. Why does the serpent have the conversation with the woman and not the man? The text doesn't tell us. So it's up to you. And guess what you're going to decide? Well, whatever rationale you want to decide based on your own experience and what you think is good, whatever. By the way, we could do a lot more detailed examination of this conversation, what gets said, what gets not said, and where the man is, by the way. Is he right next to her this whole time? Is he silent? What's going on there? Okay, well, that'll be another, another small group. All right, final one, rereading number three. And this is related to the consequences that God announces to the man and woman after they eat of the fruit. Here's what God says to the woman. I will make your pangs in childbirth exceedingly great. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So according to the traditional patriarchal interpretation, God is putting woman in her place. She's now placed in an inferior position, in permanent subordinated status to the man, and this becomes the fixed model for all men and all women forever. But there's another way to read this, and that is that the interpretive tradition is simply putting into the voice of God their preferred structuring of the world. This is how the world is because God made it so. God did this. Women, you had your chance. You failed. And so God put you in your place. And to that, we can simply say, No, (laughs) no, this is not the human world that God made. This is the human world that we make. We are the ones responsible for the ordering of human society. We are the ones that decide what has value, where we put money, who has the power, who has the authority. That is our construction. And insofar as the structuring that we've created harms women, it is bad. It opposes the ways of God. And we have a responsibility to undo the harm, to set up something different that honors God and that affirms the full dignity and equality of all human beings. This is part of our ongoing work as disciples of Jesus. You know, if we want to follow Jesus, we've got to restructure the world. Or at least, at least restructure our own relationships. Every now and then, I'm reminded of just how much patriarchal structures are still at work in me that I am still caught in the net of it. When we were um, 
first talking about doing this teaching series, I found myself getting a little uncomfortable. Like I didn't, I, I was a little hesitant to like take a deep dive into patriarchy because I think I knew in the back of my mind I would just explore how I'm still caught in it. I like seeing myself in the most favorable light. You know, I think maybe all of us do. So it's understandable. And then the story I tell myself is that I'm one of the good guys. You know, I'm one of the exceptional ones. I try to make sure I'm not like dominating conversation. I try not to make assumptions about men or women or anything related to sex or gender. But the reality is I'm still caught in it. I am still shaped by the deeply entrenched values of patriarchy, both in church and in broader society. My wife, Allie, from time to time, will point out to me how I'm making some kind of gendered assumption or that I'm not really able to hear what she's saying. And I admit I often respond defensively. That's my first go-to response. Over time, I'm learning that she's right, <laughs> like always. And I, I, as I reflect on this, I have to both reflect on the original content piece, but also what is it in me? that continues to respond out of defensiveness and gets angry when the stuff is pointed out to me. And it breaks, because it, it breaks with that self-image that I've so carefully crafted about who I am. Whew. The patriarchy of the Bible, the patriarchy of our Christian tradition, the modern-day patriarchy that shapes all of us, it's real. It is deep, it's in us, it causes bias in all kinds of ways. What matters today is what we choose to do with it. How will we act today? The invitation is to dismantle it, one piece, one day at a time. Take it apart, turn away from harmful practices, and traditions. The religious word for that is repent. Jesus uses that word a lot. Repent. Amen. Let us repent and let us embrace Jesus's ways of healing and liberation. Amen. I want to take a moment to respond in prayer. And we're going to take a moment of that repentance style prayer. So, uh, as you will, join me in prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. God, would you help us to see the ways that patriarchal values continue to shape us? Help us to turn away from those values, those practices that are harmful.
we acknowledge that the Christian tradition specifically has caused enormous harm to women. And for that, we repent. We ask for forgiveness. We ask that you would continue to shape this church, sanctuary specifically, that it would be a place of healing and liberation for all people, for women. And God, he, help each one of us as we see and confront our own internal bias, the patriarchal values still at work in each of us. Help us as we overcome those. Help us to point it out in one another graciously. We want to be a people that are formed and shaped by your visions, O oh Jesus. Pray all this in your name. Amen.